Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. We've heard how vaccine rollout is helping us round the corner on the fight against COVID-19, but some proposals from the Idaho legislature could jeopardize that distribution. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Director Brad Ritchie of the Office of Emergency Management joins us to discuss the differences between health orders and emergency declarations and why ending the emergency declaration won't have the outcome that some lawmakers are hoping for. Then Audrey Dutton of the Idaho Statesman brings us up to speed on the vaccine rollout. But first, we wanted to give you updates on stories we reported on last week. Last Friday, the House rejected a move by Representative Muffy Davis to allow for voting remotely under very limited circumstances. Davis is a paraplegic and is at an increased risk for life-threatening complications if, he, if she contracts COVID-19. The next day, Idaho Public Television's Marsha Franklin spoke to Davis, and we want you to know everyone was distanced and the crew was wearing masks. You know, for me, it was, it's, it was devastating just because it became political, and it's, it's not political for me, it's personal. It's my health and safety. Um, unfortunately, legislatures all over the country are finding ways to safely meet. Either they're doing remote or they're requiring masks and social distancing or something, but nothing in Idaho. They're not requiring masks, they're not requiring social distancing, and they're not allowing us to participate remotely. And in the middle, when numbers are the worst they've ever been in this pandemic, and it's just, um, I'm high risk because of my disability level. I don't have full lung functioning, and if I get pneumonia, it, it could become life-threatening. So um, it's, it's devastating. I want to do my job. Uh, it's an honor to represent my constituents, but to um, have to put or take unnecessary risks with my health and safety that I just, I, I try. So, you know, while it's devastating that it was a partisan vote, um, you know, I wish, I really want to see us all come together. Um, you know, for me, that's like what today is. As an athlete, it's never been a red and a blue. It's always been red, white, and blue. We're always Team USA. Um, and, you know, we know who the enemy is in this. It's the virus, and we need to come together and fight that enemy and get rid of it, and then we can go back and have our freedoms and, and everything that we so much cherish. But as long as that enemy's there, that virus is raging, if we don't come together, we're going to be dealing with it for a long time. This county's already been decimated by it in March, so... I know. I mean, that's why I take it seriously. I know people who have died. I know people who have had long-term health changes because of having COVID. I know people that are still having issues for, you know, my neighbors, friends that are still dealing with stuff. And, um, and I know people that got it and barely knew they had it. So that's the hard part with this, this enemy is, you know, people run around, don't know they have it and are spreading it and other people are dying from it. And it's, it's, We've got to take it seriously. We've got to get it in check. And this community has learned a lot. And that's, I feel safe when I'm in my community because we do have a mask mandate and people are good here. Or they socially distance and we get outside and recreate, but we're safe. Um, but in, in that state house, I don't feel safe. After last week's vote, the House majority released a statement saying they would work to find a compromise under the House's existing rules. And on Tuesday, House Majority Caucus Chair Megan Blanksma introduced one such proposal. 
Branch, RS-28270, would allow the Speaker of the House to designate an alternate location on the House floor for the purposes of debate only. This rule, if adopted, would be in place until sine die of the first regular session of this current legislature. It's the intent of the bill to provide members a way to still fully participate on the floor sessions while minimizing the time required to be on the House floor and their distance from other individuals if that is their desire. So I guess if I were to give an example, not to speak out of turn, because it would be the, the House Speaker that would be given the ability to um, create this alternate point of debate, it would be a microphone on the floor where people could watch via their laptop or some other um, streaming in somewhere else other than the House floor. If they chose to debate, then they could come in, speak at a microphone that would be distanced from other members, and then they could also leave. So it would have maximum distancing if that's what they would so desire. On Wednesday, as the nation watched President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris get sworn in, some kept a wary eye on state capitals after warnings from the FBI that the buildings could be the scenes of violent protests or riots. But in Idaho and most other states, the warnings were for naught, as almost no one showed up to protest. But if the state house lacked excitement on Wednesday, it made up for it on Friday when Governor Brad Little went on live television to slam lawmakers for proposals to end Idaho's emergency declaration relating to COVID-19, as such proposals would jeopardize millions in federal funding used for vaccine rollouts, personal protective equipment, and more. The COVID-19 emergency declaration was requested by Idaho communities and it is critical in order for Idaho to receive federal assistance, your taxpayer dollars, to manage this crisis. The COVID-19 emergency declaration has enabled us to quickly cut red tape and increase healthcare access. These are the facts. Here is the myth. The emergency declaration somehow shuts down Idaho or takes away your rights. That is patently false. Amazingly, some in the Idaho legislature are perpetuating that myth and actively seeking to end Idaho's COVID-19 emergency declaration. What does that mean for you, the citizens of Idaho? It means less vaccine, more taxes, and more red tape. It means the vaccine rollout is jeopardized, something that is unacceptable in this final stretch of our pandemic fight. It means cities and counties will have to find funds from you to pay for equipment and support they need to battle COVID-19 in your community. It means hospitals could lose access to critical supplies. It means we lose the funding to utilize the Idaho National Guard to support testing, vaccine distribution, food banks, and medical facilities, something that has been a game changer in the pandemic fight. It means we cannot cut red tape and break down regulatory hurdles that stand in the way of better health care access. It means your federal tax dollars go to California, New York, and other states. It means this terrible pandemic and the disruption to your lives will be extended, not ended. Some members of the Idaho legislature are seeking political gain by perpetuating this misinformation about emergency declarations. They are playing politics, and unfortunately the loser 
in this shameful game will be you, the citizens of Idaho. Members of the Idaho House admit they are not sure of the financial impact of ending the emergency declaration. Why then would you move forward with such a damaging move for our citizens, one that will cost Idaho taxpayers tens of millions of dollars? The Idaho Senate has made it clear they understand the importance of continuing to access federal assistance to overcome the crisis. Why then are you intent on moving forward with an action that will have the opposite effect? I believe in my heart that what the Idaho legislature is doing is harmful to our people and wrong for Idaho. I urge my partners in the legislature to stop the political gains and do what is right for the people of Idaho. Abandon the myth that the emergency declaration somehow shuts down Idaho. Abandon the myth that the emergency declaration somehow infringes on your rights. Abandon these irresponsible attempts to undo Idaho's emergency declaration, an action that only puts the lives and livelihoods of our families and neighbors in jeopardy. To watch the entire COVID-19 announcement, go to the Idaho Public Television YouTube page. We also have it on the Idaho Reports social media pages. Shortly after the speech, the House Republican Caucus responded, saying, quote, the inflammatory comments from the governor's office do nothing but complicate the process. The life-altering concerns revolving around the COVID-19 emergency continue to be in the front of our minds. Our members are working on various forms of legislation to help the state on its road to the recovery that Idahoans have been demanding for months, and we call on the governor to work with us in this process, end quote. The statement doesn't address the fact that ending the emergency declaration would harm vaccine rollout and wouldn't affect mask mandates. And little speech wouldn't have been the first time lawmakers heard this information. Earlier this week, Director Brad Ritchie of the Office of Emergency Management testified in front of the Senate State Affairs Committee that a proposal to end the emergency declaration but keep federal funding likely wouldn't work out, that not only would Idaho stand to lose those millions of dollars in federal aid, but the emergency declaration has nothing to do with the health orders regarding face coverings, group sizes, or business restrictions. Those mitigation efforts come from health orders. Still, the Senate State Affairs Committee sent the proposal to the Senate floor. As it's a concurrent resolution, it doesn't need to go to the governor. It would just need to be approved by both the House and the Senate. In other words, the governor can't veto it. On Friday, Richie joined me to delve into the details of what exactly a declaration does and doesn't do. So when we're talking about the purpose of an emergency declaration, what exactly does that allow the state to do? What kind of funds does that allow the state to access? Well, under a declaration, there's uh, an emergency disaster account uh, that allows us to immediately have that fund open to respond to whatever um, response that the communities are faced with. Normally, the way the disaster process works is it starts off at the local communities. They have an issue, it continues to grow, it gets bigger, it overwhelms them. 2017, you know, Washington County overwhelmed by the amount of snow that they had and they work to try to handle it. They expended funds, they're doing things 
uh, we look at what their budget is, you know, and, and what their annual budget is for snow removal. And if they've already expended all their funds for snow removal, then we know they're going to have to curtail certain uh, emergency services throughout the year. So that's when a county will come to the state and ask the state for uh, the governor's support. And that'll open up the emergency fund, at which time we can put in emergency protective measures. You know, what do you need? What what can we do? Is it sandbags? Is it uh, suppression of fires? Is it snow removal? Uh, those are the things that are part of the immediate response. And I have to note that, that that that's rarely controversial. What you normally do almost never becomes a, a political football. Normally, again, we're we're working on behalf and we're in uh, constant communication with the local communities to solve the issues. You know, homes are being evacuated. Uh, there's wildfires threatening the area. The flooding has uh, moved a trailer down the the river, you know, that somebody was living in that no longer has a home. So normally it's not controversial um, from the aspect of a response because the response really is all about the preparation and identifying the resources and the capabilities that we can do to minimize any life safety events or property damage. So let's talk about the COVID specific emergency declaration. What exactly is that allowing the state to do right now? What's the purpose of it? Well, um, there are several different funding streams as you know, this past year, we've, we've seen all kinds of unemployment support. We've seen uh, labor support. We've seen uh, the CARES funding support and we've also seen the support through FEMA and HHS. Some of the things that we have been able to to exercise in the state of Idaho is uh, receiving PPE, receiving testing equipment, being able to bring it into the state and distribute it across the state. We look at you know all the hospitals, all the long-term care facilities, all the county you know, when, you, when we start talking about uh, some of the restrictions, social distancing and things like that, um, in schools, universities, those are costs that nobody really anticipated this year and it wasn't really written into their budget. So having the opportunity to work with the federal uh, agencies to bring that type of assistance into the state is been tremendous. A um, couple examples. Uh, the VA, um, the federal VA administration is supporting the Idaho State Veterans Home uh, based on the outbreak they had there, the staffing uh, concerns that they have with the individuals being sick. We put in a request through FEMA, FEMA mission assigned uh, that request to the VA and VA is providing that type of uh, staffing support as well as vaccination support, testing support to the veterans home. So we've talked a little bit about what the money is doing because of the, the emergency declaration. Let's talk about what the emergency declaration doesn't do because I've heard a lot of confusion 
conflating the health orders that we're seeing from local jurisdictions and the statewide emergency declaration. So does the emergency declaration have anything to do with local mask mandates or business closures? Absolutely not. That's under the public health orders. That's not within the Idaho State Declaration. Uh, that's not within uh, Title 46-1008. Uh, it's not part of what we do. So, so to be clear, ending the emergency declaration would have no impact on what some of these local health districts or counties or cities have those decisions that they've made regarding masks or uh, group size limits or anything like that. That is correct. Yes, there's nothing in the governor's declaration or in uh, our statute uh, 461008 that even addresses that. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about what the Senate has proposed because they're they're trying to thread the needle. They're trying to end the emergency declaration while not jeopardizing federal funding. Is that even possible? Well, again, you know, when I talked, uh, had the opportunity to present before the Senate Affairs um, Committee, I, I would tell you I am no legal expert. I can tell you the legal documents that we've signed and sent to FEMA based on the governor's proclamation of operating under an emergency operation plan and doing everything he can to ensure that we've exhausted or work through an exhaustive method to make sure we're in, we're doing the best we can for all Idahoans. Under that agreement, if our declaration was to end, we've represented 44 counties and four tribes across the state that in that application. With our application no longer being, or if our declaration is stopped, there is no uh, agreement with FEMA to continue funding outside of that declaration. If that so, ends, so how I, much money? Oh, go ahead. I can kind of clarify that just a little bit better, probably. When the local communities uh, request state assistance, and once we meet a threshold in which we will qualify for federal assistance, um, we enter into an agreement with FEMA on how we will exercise and utilize and maintain our um, funds that we're receiving as well as mission assignments. So once we receive the approval to have the federal declaration for the state of Idaho, we are into that FEMA state agreement. If we no longer have a declaration, there is no requirement to have the FEMA state agreement. The FEMA state agreement basically uh, is the outline on how we will administer uh, mission assignments, um, federal funding into the state to support the local communities. How will we do all? How we do all that? So by ending the declaration, we would be ending the FEMA state agreement, which would highly limit any additional federal funding coming into Idaho. And how much money would Idaho potentially be on the hook for? Well, it's it's not that Idaho would potentially be on the hook 
Idaho, so you, we can look at it a couple different ways. We can look at the requests that have already come in and we have an approximately about 20 million in requests that haven't been processed yet. So those requests come from cities, counties, fire departments, uh, hospitals, and, and other jurisdictions looking for the support that FEMA can provide them. With the declaration ending, that closes any state support. So FEMA could agree to go ahead and pay those prior to the disaster, since they applied prior to the declaration. However, those communities will now be on the hook for the entire share, the non-federal share of, of the agreement. So those are some of the consequences that will be passed down to the local communities to pick up that tab. So when we're talking about an emergency declaration and the federal money that's coming in, it's not just a statewide impact. Can you talk about the effect on the local communities as well? Uh, and that's a really good question. You know, I have a concern uh, and I hope most Idahoans would have a concern that our ability to respond to the requests that we've seen uh, that includes the use of the National Guard that includes the distribution of ventilators across the state, the distribution of staffing and support that has come from the federal side to assist Idahoans. Uh, when we start looking at closing the disaster, that and taking the disasters, the disaster authority away from the governor, uh, our office will um, shut down the emergency operations center because we have no authority to stand it up, we will close out the emergency operation plan and the distribution of testing kits, the distribution of resources being requested, PPE across long-term care facilities, um, hospitals that continuously ask for those uh, resources would no longer be done from our office. I'm not saying they can't be done somewhere else or somehow, but we've been doing this for over 300 plus days. And the fact that the communities that as a last resort come to us and ask for it because they're really challenged with receiving uh, those type of resources, will not have any place yet to go. All right, Director Brad Ritchie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. While lawmakers and the governor duke it out over that emergency funding, the Coronavirus Vaccine Advisory Committee continues to make recommendations on vaccine rollout. Audrey Dutton of the Idaho Statesman has been following the story and joins us to discuss the latest. Thanks so much for joining us, Audrey. Uh, you covered the CVAC committee on Friday. How is Idaho doing on getting shots into arms? Well, it's been um, a I guess slow rollout, depending on how you look at it. Um, we're currently at about 82,500 doses administered, and of those doses, about 13,700 people um, have received both doses, so they're fully vaccinated at this point. Um, the, oh, go ahead, please. Well, uh, there's been a little bit of um, inconsistency and some questions about how it's being carried out. Um, so the state 
has much more supply than that. And so a lot of people have asked questions about why do we have, you know, 155,000 doses and we've only administered 82,000. You know, and that bottleneck isn't unique to Idaho. I've been looking at uh, distribution maps and, and updates for all 50 states, and the federal government left that distribution up to the states. Do we know how Idaho is doing compared to everyone else? Well, it depends what metrics you look at. Um, and if you look at the CDC's uh, vaccine data, we rank somewhere between middle for uh, middle of the nation for um, how many people have been fully vaccinated to uh, bottom for how many doses of those we have um, have been administered. Um, I, I'm not sure how accurate it is to draw conclusions from those data points though. Um, our experience during this pandemic has been that different states report things so differently and there's data lag and things like that. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt. And when we talk about distribution within our own state, it's not necessarily even across the board, is it? Right, and that came up today in the meeting too. Um, one board member uh, or committee member rather brought up that in some regions of the state school board members are getting vaccinated. Um, one person brought up that in some places university professors are getting vaccinated despite working remotely um, and that's not happening happening everywhere. So it's been pretty tricky as they try as the committee tries to juggle different priorities how to make these decisions and then of course have the issue of the vaccine coming from the federal government directly to providers from manufacturers directly to providers um, based on allocations that we request. And um, it's really kind of the rollout plans are really handled on the ground by the health districts themselves. So they're trying to follow these guidelines they're getting, but you know, medical providers are having to make um, judgment calls on the fly. Do you fall into this category? You know, those sorts of things. And, and ultimately, it does come down to the provider, correct? Because they don't want to waste shots if the people who fit neatly into the first and second categories aren't necessarily lining up at the door at the clinic at that given time. That's right. Yeah, they've, um, from what I'm hearing, they've done a pretty good job of um, staying close to the guidelines. Um, if they do have an extra dose or somebody who doesn't show, they try to follow um, the rollout plan for, okay, we want to make sure this gets to the next person who's in line. Um, but certainly, shots and arms are people vaccinated. And a lot of people have made that argument that if it's going to go to waste, give it to someone. Um, that does raise a lot of questions. And that's kind of what the vaccine committee has been um, kind of tangling with is how do you decide who is best to receive it next? Um, and you make sure that you have equity in that and fairness, and you're trying to control transmission, and you're trying to sustain infrastructure, Those all those different priorities that they're trying to, to juggle. Briefly, we have about a minute left, but meanwhile, infections are going down in Idaho, but they're still alarmingly high. They're still higher than we want them to be. And others are still dealing with long-term effects of the infections that they got months ago, this is something that you're writing about for the statesman. Yeah, a story in um, Sunday's paper going into what it's like for some Idahoans from all around the state um, to be dealing with what's called long COVID or long hauler um, syndrome. They 
told me about all of their different symptoms that they've had. Some of them have had issues for months now, are seeing cardiologists, um, and they're uh, relatively young people, you know, 30s, 40s, um, 50s, and they really want people to understand that we have numbers for survived and we have numbers for died. We do not have numbers for people who have ongoing health problems as a result of the coronavirus. All right, Audrey Dutton of the Idaho Statesman, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And thank you for watching. We'll see you here next Friday. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.